and welcome to Proud to Be, the show that highlights veterans, military personnel, and family members published in Proud to Be, writing by American Warriors, a creative writing anthology that preserves and shares our nation's military experience through poetry, fiction, essay, interviews, and photography. I'm your host, Lisa Carrico, and our guest for this episode is Jared Taylor. He is a combat veteran and served as an infantryman in the U.S. Army for nearly a decade. After leaving the military, he received a Bachelor of Arts in History with secondary teacher certification from Eastern Illinois University in 2013, and now has a Master's of Arts in Education and an Education Specialist degree from University of the Cumberlands. Jared has taught middle school history as well as high school English and social studies. He has a passion for writing about his military experiences, and his essays, stories, and photographs have been published more than a dozen times in various anthologies and journals. Jared is in the final stages of editing his own book about his military experiences in Iraq and Afghanistan and his transition from military to civilian life. Jared has been published in six of the 10 volumes, and today we will hear some of his thoughts and stories behind some of his PTB contributions. Jared, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thanks for taking time to, to talk. Sure. Uh, Jared, you served as an infantryman in the U.S. Army from 2000 to 2009 with several tours. How did you find yourself serving in the military? And could you tell us about your service? Sure. So I really, I kind of grew up interested in the military. Um, my grandmother's brother actually was a, an airman in World War II, and she always had his picture hanging in her living room. Um, he was on a bomber that crashed in Italy and actually never made it home until many years later. Um, and then I was a kid when I found out my dad had been in the army, I discovered his uniform in a closet and I was like completely wowed and just awed that my dad had been in the army and I'd never known about it. Um, and then, you know, as I was growing up, I was reading a lot of books about Vietnam and, you know, I joined my high school ROTC program and everything. And I think everybody kind of thought that I was going to enlist. And then I sort of chickened out after high school. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I was actually, I was friends with most of the recruiters and I think everybody thought that I was a sure thing for, you know, signing up right out of school. And then I didn't. Um, so I was actually 20 when I finally, I was like, you know what, I'm, I'm ready to do it. I'm going to get out of my hometown and go do some different stuff. Um, so I enlisted, I, I went to Fort Benning for basic training in airborne school. And then I ended up at Fort Drum with 10th mountain division. Um, I deployed a couple of times there, uh, it was 11 Bravo, of course. So infantrymen. Um, I deployed to Afghanistan and Uzbekistan right at the beginning um, in December of 2001, came home in spring of 2002. In 2003, we went to the Horn of Africa, um, and then I came home, changed duty stations over to Schofield Barracks because my wife wanted to go somewhere warm, so we went to Hawaii. I went back to Afghanistan, um, and then I came back from there and finally went to Iraq, and then after that, I decided I was ready to be done and stay at home for a while. Okay. Um, so where are you now? I actually, I'm in Shelbyville, Kentucky, just east of Louisville. Um, okay. So I work in Louisville, but we live, it's a kind of a small town. Yeah, so still not in Hawaii. <laughs> no, we're not, we're not in Hawaii anymore. I, I do miss it. I, I would go back <laughs> in a heartbeat. Uh, so, well, after your, your service with multiple deployments, uh, you then went on to receive your BA in history uh, from Eastern Illinois University in 2013. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about your post-military life and what you do now and what you're doing in Kentucky? Sure. I, uh, so I became a teacher. Um, I majored in history and minored in English at EIU. Um, when I graduated, I started teaching middle school history at a private school in Champaign, Illinois. Um, it was fun. I had a good time. And then my wife had an opportunity to work in Kentucky. So we moved down here after three years of teaching. Um, I got a job with a, a big picture learning school. Actually, they were just starting. And that's all about um, personalized learning and internships and real world experiences for students. So I took a job and helped start that school. And then I moved into the Louisville School District, the Jefferson County Public Schools, and started doing the same kind of work there. Um, so 
course, now it's six years later and I've done a master's program and an education specialist degree and I'm ready to be a principal or something. Um, I haven't decided yet, but uh, I'm working in a school. I'm not in a classroom anymore. I just help kids. I connect them with real world experiences in the community. Sometimes I'm taking them out to a welding shop or an auto shop or you know, whatever they're interested in learning more about, I'll, I'll arrange to take them and, and let them get their hands into it and see if it's something they really like. That sounds really uh, rewarding and so powerful to, for the students to have kind of those real life experiences. Um, so I am curious, do, you, do your students know that you are a veteran? And if so, how, how do they respond to that? Um, I think at this point, most of them know. Um, it, I didn't used to put that out there right away. I just kind of kept that in my back pocket for, you know, special occasions. And then all the kids are like, what, what? I didn't know. Um, and it's funny, I've, I've taught history and I've also taught high school English. Um, so at one point I gave them one of my stories and I changed all the names. It was one of my proud to be stories. Um, and I changed all the names in it. And, you know, I was asking them, I'm like, what do you think the author's trying to say? And, and then finally, one of my students was like, wait, did you write this? And I'm like, I did. <laughs> <Busted>. <laughs> um, yeah. So, um, I think at this point, most of them know, but every once in a while I'll have a student and I'll be like, you know, when I was in the army and they're like, wait, what? You were in the army? And then of course the first question is always like, well, did you kill anybody? You know, and I'm like, okay, we're not talking about that. Um, <laughs> but no, it's kind of funny, their reactions, because I mean, I, the private school I taught in, I had a, a pretty big population of Muslim students and they were like, wait, do you hate Muslims? And I was like, no, of course I don't hate Muslims. Like I was just doing my job and like they were doing their thing, you know, like I, it has nothing to do with me versus you or anything else. Um, a lot of kids, they think it's cool. They think it's neat to have a teacher who's, you know, been out of a classroom and, and kind of been around the world and seen some things. And so, I mean, I think it adds to my ability to connect with students. Yeah, absolutely. I'm always just curious by uh, the generational responses to, to serving in war, especially when it's, you know, kind of their the person in leadership for them. So yeah. you as their teacher. <laughs> <laughs> I think sometimes they, they uh, can be a little intimidated, but I try to not you know break out my Sergeant Taylor voice too often. <laughs> <laughs> you know that they've done something wrong if they right, right. <laughs> hear that voice and they probably take it pretty seriously. <laughs> yeah. um, well, how do you feel your military service um, has impacted your life? Um, I, oh, there's so many ways. Um, you know, I've never had friends like I had when I was in the military. So I miss that. Um, coming back and going to college. I, I mean, I was a mediocre student and I did okay, you know, before the army. And when I came back, I was like, man, this is easy. These kids are throwing a fit about having to write a paper or study for a test. And I'm like, I have done much harder things. Like you want me to stay up all night and write a paper because I waited to the last minute. Okay. <laughs> you know? Um, so it was cool because I, I made straight A's for the first time. And I mean, through every semester as an undergrad and even as a grad student, I was just like, this is a piece of cake. I don't know why I didn't do better before. Um, you know, I think that I came home feeling a little bit, I mean, I, I was a little impatient and a little over being gone so much and all that. And I think everybody comes back a little bit different when, than when they left. Um, but I think that I came back and sort of had this feeling that after everything I had done, that there wasn't really much that could stop me from doing whatever I wanted to do. You know, and it was like, I knew how to just focus on what needed to be done. And I had the, the discipline and the drive to accomplish whatever I was kind of chasing after. And that has stuck with me, although I'm getting old and a little tired, so <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm slowing down on that some, but, but I do think that that made a huge difference in kind of my approach to the world. Yeah, I sometimes, I think about that just in my perspective of education, um, having real life experience before going into school, I think sometimes prepares you a little bit more for that experience. Um, I do think in, you know, in classes, just making, you know, being able to make connections with the stuff you're learning about and being able to be like, oh, I've, I've seen that or I've lived it or, you know, I know, know somebody who's been in that situation. It's, it's way different than being, you know, 18 years old and, and trying to prepare yourself for the real world by reading about it and talking about it, but never having done it. Uh, yeah, for sure. And do you feel like because of the traveling you did in your military experience, did that lead you to 
um, want to teach history or was that always there for you? Well, I'm not a math person. <laughs> um, so yeah, I, I definitely, I was like, man, all the places I've been and the things I've done and I've helped make history. I definitely was thinking as I was going back into school, I was like, you know, one of these days I'm going to be teaching and stuff that I've done will be in some of these textbooks and that will be awesome. Although now I'm pretty anti-textbook, but, (laughs) (laughs) Um, but I do think it's cool to be able to look at, at historical events and, and be like, man, I was there, you know, I did that. Yeah, no, that's fascinating. Um, well, so here's all of this history, uh, both lived and taught, um, So how did you get started writing? And more specifically, how did you find yourself writing about your military experience? So, I mean, everybody in the army was expected to carry a notebook at all times and and make notes about what you're supposed to be doing. And I ended up carrying a journal on my first deployment and I didn't keep up with writing in it, um, but I started to. And then on my Iraq deployment, I carried just like a, a leather bound journal and I wrote in it, not every day. I started off kind of every day. And then um, I, you know, I, I got, got busy sometimes, but I was writing down just basic, like we did a raid today, we hit this house and, you know, so-and-so did this and, and this soldier said that. And it was kind of, you know, my guys were always like, why are you always carrying that notebook around and writing in it? And I was like, someday I'll put you in a book or a story or something. And they're like, yeah, whatever, you know? (laughs) Um, So I had all these notes kind of in a journal. And I realized at one point that I could put them into stories um, and and really kind of talk about my experiences and then the way I felt after and all that. Um, I was a huge fan of Tim O'Brien's, the things they carried and how it wasn't like a novel. It was a collection of individual stories, but you could still read it cover to cover. Um, So I just started writing kind of like short pieces about just individual experiences and, and, you know, kind of my take on them afterwards. Um, And I actually, when I was at EIU, I had to take a class. It was a senior seminar and it had to be something that wasn't in your major content area. Um, So I picked a class called War Stories. I was like, well, it's pretty history related anyway, but we read all sorts of literature from the Civil War up through Afghanistan, and we had to write all these responses to what we were reading and, and have discussions with other students. And my professor was like, you know, it's clear you have a lot to say and you can relate to all this material. You really ought to write down some of your stories and, and do something with them. And that was actually how I ended up with submitting my first piece to Proud to Be because he sent me the link and was like, I think you need to do this. Um, So it was really cool that I got to take that class and talk with these young undergraduate students about my experiences. And then I ended up taking that journal I carried through Iraq and, and typing out some of those stories. And then I ended up here. Well, that's really cool. And um, to whoever this professor is in Illinois, uh, thank you for connecting people to our Proud to Be series. And I'm really glad that you found Proud to Be and that you've been contributing for for years. So thank you. Um, I do have a guest follow-up question to that. Like whenever he suggested, this professor suggested that you submitted, um, did you have any reservations? Was this your first publication? It was, I'd actually, I had taken a class called historical research and writing, and I had submitted my research paper to like the university's historic or historical journal. Um, and I published that research so really that, that was my first publication and then proud to be, I think was the next year. Um, but yeah, I, I'd never really thought about sharing any of my creative writing with anyone or any of my personal stories. It was just, you know, research papers and things like that. Um, and I think this professor, he was, he was born in a refugee camp after World War II. His parents were Holocaust survivors. Um, and he's written several books about their experience and then about his experience growing up that way. Um, so I think that knowing that he had books out there and that he was like, Hey man, I'm, I'm an author and a professor. And like, I think you need to write this stuff down and share it like that. That really made me want to do it. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. Um, well, let's explore one of your pieces. Um, this one's published in volume two called escort. Would you mind reading a few excerpts from the essay? Um, feel free to set up the excerpts and perhaps talk about the personal significance behind this piece. 
Um, as as soldiers, when I, when I was stationed at Fort Drum, we did a lot of uh, touring around New England, doing funeral details. So we did a lot of, you know, the 21 gun salutes and the folding the flag over the casket and everything. So I had traveled around and done a lot of military rites and honors at funerals. Um, we normally covered everywhere, kind of from New York to Boston, all the way up into Maine. Um, it was after I got to Hawaii was the first time I was put on an escort detail where I actually had to fly a soldier's remains back to his hometown. Um, and I wrote this story about an experience I had. We had a young kid who uh, was found dead in a hotel room on Mother's Day. So it wasn't even uh, like a war casualty, but we still had to fly home and there was the honor guard and everything there. So I'll, uh, I'll read a little bit of this from the beginning and then we'll uh, go from there. Ladies and gentlemen, this is your captain speaking. On behalf of Delta Airlines, I would like to welcome you to San Antonio, Texas. The local time is 11.23 a.m. and is currently 78 degrees and sunny. We'll be pulling up to the jetway momentarily, but we ask that you please remain in your seats. Today, we have the honor of carrying the remains of a fallen American soldier. Please remain seated until this, his casket can be offloaded. Thank you for your patience and thanks again for flying Delta Airlines. The flight attendants were up moving around the cabin and one of them approached my seat. Thanks for doing what you're doing, she said. If you would like to go ahead and grab your carry-on, you can move up to the door. I unfastened my seatbelt and reached up to grab my bag from the overhead bin. The passenger sitting near me suddenly looked very uncomfortable. The young woman whom I had sat next to for the last few hours had told me all about her hometown, her work, how much she loved running. She'd asked me about where I lived, if I had been overseas and what it was like to jump out of airplanes. We had talked off and on for most of the flight, but now she looked at me sympathetically. She hadn't thought to ask why I was flying to San Antonio. Once again, we appreciate your patience, ladies and gentlemen. Please remain in your seats and we will deplane momentarily. As I stood up, I straightened my necktie and pulled at the hem of my green jacket. Once everything was in place, I moved forward. As I walked toward the door, some of the passengers looked at me with sorrowful faces. Others checked their watches as if waiting was a huge inconvenience. A few older gentlemen looked at me and nodded. As I reached the door of the aircraft, I was met by the pilot. He put his hat on and I slipped on a pair of white gloves and pulled my black beret onto my head, making sure that the folds were just right. I followed him out onto the jetway and then through the side door that led outside. We walked down a flight of metal steps onto the tarmac where a charcoal gray hearse was backed up next to the conveyor belt that would carry luggage out of the plane's cargo hold. The driver stepped out, opened its rear door and walked over to us. He was an older man dressed in black and walking with a limp. On his left lapel, he wore an American flag pin. He shook hand with, hands with the pilot and then reached for my hand. Good morning, Sergeant, I'm Bill Myers. Once we get the casket loaded, I'll take you on around to pick up your luggage. I reached out and shook his hand. It's nice to meet you, sir, I'm Staff Sergeant Taylor. The pilot nodded to the ground crewman who was standing in the entrance of the plane's cargo hold. Looking up at the plane, I could see passengers' faces in the windows. They were all looking down, trying to see what was happening. Behind me in the airport terminal, some people had stood up and were watching. I stood there thinking about how much I hated this part of the job and how later I would have to meet this kid's parents. How the hell did I get picked for this one anyway? He wasn't even in my squad. So thinking about that, um, doing these escort duties, it's like you're flying in your dress uniform and you're making small talk. And, and then all of a sudden when you land, everybody finds out that you're carrying a casket under the plane and then everybody gets uncomfortable. Um, so we got the casket loaded into the hearse. And, you know, of course there's the slow salute as the casket comes down the ramp and the flags draped over it and everything. Um, and then it was about a 45 minute drive to the funeral home. So I'm talking with um, the funeral director and you know he's telling me about the family because it's a small town and they're all familiar and dad's retired navy and mom's heartbroken and and of course you know we're getting all this personal backstory from this kid's family and everything um and then when we get there the mom is of course you know standing there with her makeup running down her cheeks and she's ready to see see her son in the casket and I have to open it and make sure that his uniform is correct and everything and and of course it wasn't something had you know, been put on a little bit crooked. So then I had to fix it, um, which I really did not want to do with her watching me, but I did and it was fine. Um, but then once we got there and, and everybody was inside, like the dad was not there yet. Um, and then I'm going to start reading again here where he kind of walked into the room. 
I walked to the back of the viewing room and I was angry that I had been picked for this escort detail. I wanted to tell someone at the casualty assistance office that the preparing funeral home had done a really lousy job on the makeup. The funeral director walked up and said that his makeup artist would clean up Jimmy's face and hands before the visitation the following day. I thanked him and stood alone at the back of the room. A minute later, the side door opened again and Jimmy's dad walked in. Jim Sr. was a brawny man with hair over his ears and collar and a thick graying beard. He had big tattooed arms and wore biker boots, faded jeans, and a plaid button-up shirt with the sleeves rolled halfway up his biceps. It looked like he could have come straight out of a biker magazine. I, I ride motorcycles too, so no offense to anyone. <laughs> Jim walked into the room and a handful of gathered family members parted for him to walk through. He approached Jimmy's casket and I heard him mumble something. With his hands on the rail, he leaned over it and said, that's not my Jimmy. He repeated it more loudly and finally turned to his wife. It can't be him, that can't be my son. They held each other sobbing, but his gaze searched the room and found me near the back wall. I straightened up a bit and he stepped around his wife in my direction. His face was filled with hurt and wet with tears. He walked toward me like a man on a mission and as he got closer, I wondered what was going to happen. When he was only a few steps away and still hadn't slowed his pace, I half expected him to swing at me. Instead, he ran right into me, wrapping his arms around me and crying on my shoulder. He sobbed loudly and thanked me over and over for bringing his boy home. So um, that was pretty much the end of that day. I hung out, you know, making sure they had everything they needed. Um, and then I stuck around the rest of the week for the funeral. And really, I was frustrated personally because this young man had just been partying too hard and ended up dying from that. It wasn't, wasn't any sort of a heroic death. You know, he didn't die like fighting for his country or saving someone's life or anything. So it was frustrating to me to know that he was getting the same sort of reception that my friends who had been killed overseas got. Um, at the same time, I felt like his family deserved that. I mean, he went off to serve his country, you know, and um, I felt like he wore the uniform, so he still deserved that honor, but it was just, it was interesting to see it play out that way. Um, I was glad that his dad was not upset with me. I was worried that they were going to, you know, point the blame towards me because I was the one who brought him home and I was a, a leader in his unit. Um, but that wasn't the case. They were, they were grateful for me bringing him home. And then at the funeral, I was surprised to see his dad show up with, you know, a clean haircut and clean shaven in his Navy whites. So, uh -huh. um, but it was, it was quite an experience to, to do that. And I feel like you know, we see people flying on planes, we see guys in uniform or women in uniform, and we don't really know what they're doing. Um, you know, all the stuff that seems like you read about military service is all, you know, bang, bang, shoot them up hero stuff. And there's a lot more that goes on than just that. And there's a lot of, I, I mean, a lot of emotional stuff that you have to deal with, um, you know, doing those funeral details and doing those escort details. Um, so that's, that's kind of why I wanted to share that story. Yeah, I feel like it's not always the military story you hear. And I think that's something that I really love about Proud to Be is that there's such a variety of stories from what people witness during service, but also um, coming home and unpacking a lot of the past as well. So I'm, when I read this, it was such a power, powerful piece and also, um, part of military life that you don't always hear those, those stories about. And it was, it was actually funny. The, the response I got to that piece was kind of just what you said. Everybody was like, wow, like you said so much in so few words. And I submitted a second piece, Cub Scout camping trip to that same volume. And I thought that was the better story, <laughs> but everybody seemed to love escort. And it seemed like they really took, you know, people took a lot away from that story. So I was glad that I put that in there as well. <laughs> <laughs> um, so do you think, um, like, why do you feel that those stories should be shared as well? You know, I think that a lot of, a lot of the stuff in the, in the military, I mean, deployments, you know, I mean, there's six months or sometimes, I mean, we did one that was like 14 months and it's not all action. I mean, there, there are times where there's just, you know, crazy adrenaline rushes and I mean, there's bombs going off and people are shooting back and forth and and it's like that it's like a movie sometimes but there's so much time that's not there's a lot of time that you're idle and you're bored and missing home or 
you're just hanging out with, you know, your brothers and sisters. It's, I mean, there's just so many other things that you do in the military that I feel like are unique situations to the military that most people would never have to do. I mean, if a coworker at my work right now passed away, I wouldn't have to go like take their casket to their mom. You know, that's, that's just not something that you do in, in most lines of work. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, so for our uh, listeners, Proud to Be is published in partnership with Southeast Missouri State University Press and is a juried competition with a monetary prize in each of the five submission categories. And Jared, your piece in volume five, section 60, was the essay winner for this volume. Would you mind reading uh, a few pieces from the essay and feel free to set them up just like you did the last one and maybe talk about the intricacies behind this piece? Sure. Um, So section 60, and I'll probably have a hard time reading through this one. Um, After I became a middle school teacher, I took a group of eighth graders to Washington, D.C., and we did all the memorials and monuments, and then we went to Arlington on, I think, our last morning there. And my plan, I had a few parent chaperones with me, and I was like, hey, when we get to Arlington, I'm going to I'm gonna head over to Section 60 real quick. Like, I have some friends who are buried here, um, so I'm just going to pop by there real quick, and then I'll catch back up with the tour group. And it was interesting because our bus driver was a Vietnam veteran and he told all my students before we got off the bus, he was like, look, like I have friends buried in the cemetery. Like there will be funerals here today. This is not a tourist attraction. So please don't take pictures. Like that's, that's somebody's family. Um, And then when we split off where the students were going to see the tomb of the unknown and I was going to uh, section 60 and it'd been years since I'd been there. um, And it had filled in quite a bit since the last time I was there. Um, so really that was kind of where this story started. And then, um, find a good spot to start here. So Jared, what is the significance of section 60? If no, if somebody hasn't been to Arlington cemetery. Um, so Arlington is just numbered in sections. Um, and at the time section 60 was where pretty much all of the Operation Enduring Freedom and Operation Iraqi Freedom soldiers were being buried, soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marines. Um, But that's pretty much where all the casualties, if they were gonna be buried in Arlington, like section 60 is kind of the the next section that they were filling. Um, So that's ends up, I had friends from Fort Drum who were killed, who were buried in section 60 and um, one from Iraq who was buried in section 60. And then we had several friends who were killed in the helicopter crash in Iraq. Um, and the medic actually who landed and, and helped with that had a submission and proud to be as well. And I was there and couldn't believe that she was talking about a story that I knew. Um, so the military is kind of a small world, but yeah, so I just, I had several friends buried in section 60 and I wanted to stop by and I hadn't been there for several years. Um, <clears throat> so I think I'm just going to start right here where I was walking to towards section 60. I walked past the different sections. 54, 55, 59, and looked at the stones. Born 1920, died 1944. And his wife, Vera, born 1926, died 1944. As I neared section 60, I felt the tears coming closer. I was choking back tears, but I wasn't even sure why. I was never particularly close to the friends I have buried here, and I never met my great uncle. I played golf with Jason, helped train Kyle, and I got to know Josh pretty well, but I wasn't really part of this clique. Come on, Jared, get your shit together. I kept walking. I stopped and downloaded the Arlington app on my phone. I knew where Kyle was located and I had an idea about Josh and Sean, but I wasn't certain. Plus messing with my phone gave me something else to think of. I won't have to cry if I'm occupied. Section 60, here goes. I tell myself, I'll visit each of the guys, have a good cry and then I'll get back to my students. I reached the middle of section 60 and turned into the grass walking between the stones. The last time I was here, Josh and Sean were the last two buried in their row. Section 60 still had a lot of empty space then. Now it's filled. I found Josh and Sean right next to each other. I spent a few moments there, took some photos and brushed bird shit off one of their stones. Then I turned to look for Kyle's grave. My mother and stepfather were here when Kyle was buried. I was in Iraq, but I saw a photo that someone had taken and I saw my parents there in the back of the crowd. 
It just so happened that they were on vacation in Virginia when everything had happened. So they were able to be there. I was glad. I walked through the rows of headstones, looking at the numbers and counting down until I reached Kyle's marker, section 68666. Just as I spotted Kyle's stone, I saw her, a beautiful young woman in her early 20s, I would say. She wore a blue dress that stopped just above her knees, covered by a tan overcoat that hung open and nude high heels. Her lips were bright red and her hair blonde, sorry, and her blonde hair hung to her shoulders, blowing in the cool morning breeze. At first, she seemed out of place to me as she walked among the stones in my direction. She walked through the grass, careful not to let her heels sink in, into the, sink in until she found her spot. There was a small shade tree, sorry. There was a small shade tree between stones and I could tell she knew it well. She approached the tree, placed a blanket at its base and sat down. I did my best not to make eye contact with her. I wanted so badly to talk to her, to ask questions, to tell her that I'm sorry. As I glanced in her direction, I could see the tears on her face as she sat there twisting her wedding ring around her finger. I couldn't fight the tears anymore. She was so young, her whole life ahead of her and already a widow. He had probably been just as young, just as much life ahead of him. She reminded me of my own wife when I went off to war for the first time. What if, I wondered. They were probably just starting out, newlyweds, excited to start living once he came home, but he couldn't. She sat there crying softly, talking to him. Later, she moved closer to the stone, sitting in the grass above her dead husband's body, talking to him as if he were calling from overseas. She told him what she'd been doing and how much she missed him. She shared some gossip from her friends and talked about having dinner with his parents. So young, such a tragedy. I was happy to see beer bottle caps on Kyle's headstone. Sunday had been the anniversary of his death and other friends had been there recently. I knelt and cried and apologized, feeling guilty, but knowing I couldn't have done anything to change it. <clears throat> so well, this story still gets me. Um, I went back to my students after that, but it was just so different to see this young woman sitting at the grave. Um, it still gets me. Yeah, I know in the story you, you wanted to talk to her and you never did. Is there ever this part of you now that wishes that you had talked to her or? I, maybe, I, I don't know what I would have said. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, what? what can you say? Like, it would have been interesting to hear the story um, and to know who he was. But, but yeah, I, did, I don't know. I don't know what I would have ever said. Yeah, I feel like this piece, I mean, that is a really difficult situation and, and making that decision of whether or not to talk to a stranger that's in the middle of grief and you're feeling uh, the feelings that you're feeling from your loss. But I, I definitely feel like visiting a cemetery, um, people are there to remember, to, um, share in grief. And I feel like that this piece does a great job of this juxtaposition of kind of your students being there to learn, but people go there too, as tourists to learn about, you know, the cemetery that houses a lot of history, um, but then at the same time, there's this lived veteran experience and there are military wives and children that are visiting and graves. And um, this piece just does a really beautiful job of expressing that shared grief. It was when I came home, I, I knew I when I saw her, I knew I had to write about it. Um, and then I came home and I wrote it and then I handed it to my wife and I was like, read this. Um, and of course she cried, <laughs> um, you know, and she was like, why didn't, why didn't you ever tell me about this story or this experience? And I was like, I just had to write it. Like I knew I had to write it, but yeah, I mean, <laughs> again, you know, I remember people being like, well, this isn't your normal war story and, and it's not, but it's, it's part of the military experience. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, what do you hope that people take away from reading this, this essay? Um, I mean, I think, and it's been written about before in the history, like you know, history books and things where like, it's the young people who bear the burden, of, you know, of old men decisions. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> really, like, it's like these, these young kids who go off and, you know, maybe they're looking for adventure, or maybe they want to serve or, or whatever reason, but they're the ones who end up 
you know, sacrificing, whether mm-hmm. it's injury or death or just time and life in their youth. Um, but then like, it, it doesn't just stop with them. Like they have families and, you know, sometimes a, a wife and, or a husband and children and, you know, parents and like, it, it hits a lot of people in a lot of different ways. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, Jay Hardin did our first episode with us and he's been published in all the books and he's a Vietnam veteran. And he also shares that sentiment of old men making decisions for the young for war. So, um, but yeah, the impact is so great. And it's just so important to read pieces like that, that share how a loss of a life in, in war, just in military service has a whole life outside of it that is impacted by it. So, so thank you for, for submitting that piece section 60. And I, um, um, you know, you read that one at our, um, proud to be reading and, I think there were several people in the room, myself included, that were weeping. It was just such a moving and powerful piece to listen to. Well, I was glad to be able to share it, even though I, I still, like I said, I get choked up when I, when I read it or think about it. Yeah, absolutely. I can't imagine a story like that is, is hard. I don't know if that gets easier over time, so... <laughs> Um, well, um, do you feel like with your writing, I feel like these were two very different essays and in comparison to some of your other stuff, like the one published in proud to be, um, three, do you feel like you have a particular style when it comes to your military writing and what other writings have you done? Um, I, I don't know that I necessarily have a particular style. I feel like if I sat down and read it all, it would probably all go together one way or another. Um, I try to write in ways that will make people feel something or think something. When I wrote section 60, I was like, whoever reads this will cry. And then when I submitted it for Proud to Be, I was like, I feel like this one's gonna win because they're not gonna be able to get through it without tears. And like the goal is to use words to make people feel something or think something or have this aha moment. I mean, a lot of my writing at the end, I'll throw in just a little, like just a little twist to make people be like, oh, I had no idea, you know, and and not, I mean, it's not some crazy big novel with a a suspenseful ending. It's just like a a little jab at the end to make you think or, or react, you know. Um, A lot of my writing originally was in Proud to Be, um, and then I've gone through and made revisions and I've submitted some of those stories to online journals and some other places. Um, and then really I ended up putting it all together and kind of filling in some of the gaps because I had deployments in 2001 and two and then 2003 and then 04 and 05 and then 07 through 09. So I kind of filled in some gaps and put all those stories together and tried to put together a whole book of stories that would be like that. I mean, there's definitely some action in there, but it's a lot of stuff to make you hopefully make the reader be like, wow, like I didn't know that it felt like that or it, you know, it, I I didn't know that they were going through things like that, like outside of the, you know, the gunfights and the explosions and all that. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, you kind of talked about that, like repolishing these pieces to submit them to other journals. Um, and all of the pieces that you've talked to, that we've read so far, Escort and Section 60, um, have been revised and they're now included in a new book that's coming out soon. So could you tell us a little bit about your new book? Sure. Um, so, and it's kind of a funny story. Um, there's a, a country music artist who put out a music video and a song, a single, uh, that's been probably a year and a half ago called Solder City. Um, 
and they asked Solder City veterans to come to Nashville and take part in this video shoot. And I was like, well, that sounds fun. I'll run down there and do that. And I knew that there were a couple of other veteran writers who were going to be there um, that I'd been connected with on Facebook and then a handful of other people that I actually knew personally were going to be there. Um, so I thought it'd be a great time to get together and hang out with some other vets. And it turned out that they were filming at this home that had been used as a hospital by the Union soldiers during the Civil War. Um, so he, there's all these artifacts and stuff around that they found on the property. And this old house is just like an incredible piece of history. But it was owned by a guy who publishes books for a living. And he had published these other two authors who were going to be there. And I had no idea. But they asked us to bring our you know, photos and anything we had left over from our deployments with us. So I brought my journal. And he was telling the story about how he had met this first author. And this guy had been injured, you know, traumatic brain injury and realized he was having memory problems. So he was writing everything down during deployment because he couldn't remember from day to day what was happening. Oh, wow. um, and that became his first book. So I was like holding up my journal and I'm like, I didn't have the brain injury part, I don't think. <laughs> but, I, <laughs> but I do have a journal that details... So this, this publisher sat down and started flipping through it. And he was like, I can show you how to self-publish this. And, you know, he's like, there's not a lot of writing about Sauter City. There's only a few books out that talk about that specific, you know, the battles that were fought in that specific city. And he's like, we want to get as much history recorded as we can. Um, so it's been a long process, but I've taken all those stories and, and added to it. And now I have this book um, that should be out. I'm hoping to have my first printed proof here in about a week. Mm -hmm. um, but so many war stories always, you know, jokingly started off with no shit there I was, you know, <laughs> whatever, you know, knee deep in snow or, or whatever the case was. And I kept trying to think of what I was going to call this book, because it's sort of a collection of individual stories that could also be read chapter to chapter, like I mentioned, you know, Tim O'Brien's book. Um, but like, you don't have to read, you can read cover to cover, but you could also just pick it up and read one, one section and understand it by itself. Um, I kept trying to think of a title and finally I was like, it's gotta be no shit. Here I am because I made it through all this, you know, and it starts talking about how I kind of ended up wanting to join the military. And, and then there's some stories in there, like section 60 about after I got home, um, and kind of my, my wrap up reflection at the end on like, this is everything I've done and, and where I've been and like, I'm still here. So I was like, it's, it's got to start with, you know, no shit there I was, and it kind of ends with, and now no shit here I am. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. So um, maybe for our listeners that are not familiar with Sauter City and what happened there, do you, could you re kind of recap what that was and what happened? Sure. So in 2004, um, there was like a lot of heavy fighting in Sauter City. And if you go back and really study the war in Iraq, it seems like whatever was happening in Sadr City kind of led what was happening in the rest of the country. If there was heavy resistance there, there was going to be heavier fighting in the rest of the country. Um, if things were going well there, then it seemed like they were going well. Yeah, and, and not 100% of the time, but it, it kind of seemed like that was kind of the mood setter for the rest mm -hmm. of the country. Um, in 2008, when I was in Iraq, my company was called down. We were north of Baghdad up in the Taji area. And they were firing rockets from Sadr City and areas around Sadr City into the green zone. And the unit that was responsible for that area needed help. So they called my company and like one company from each of our battalions that was there into that area to go and work um, and try to get that under control. So like we started off our first night there, we did a raid on a house and um, we were overwatching like firing sites. So like parks, empty lots, anywhere that they could fire rockets from, you know, that would be unobstructed into the green zone. Um, and I mean, by, we hit that first house at like four o'clock in the morning and by noon we were, you know, in a gunfight in the street and I mean, we had trucks getting blown up and I mean, it was just what you would expect a war to look like. I mean, there's buildings on fire and, and rubbled walls and shot up cars and, uh, you know, bombs going off and helicopters firing rockets. And it, I mean, it was just, it was what I would have imagined war would be. Um, and we were there for about 45 days. But by the time we left the city, 
Um, and of course, the other unit that was there stayed. Um, but by the time we left that area, the businesses were open again and people were back out in the streets. And like we had, you know, gotten things under control enough that it wasn't completely unsafe for everyone anymore. So it was, it was really cool to see that change in such a short time. I mean, it was like every day we were out patrolling and when we started there, like every day was gunfights and explosions and all that. And by the time we left, it was, it was happening a lot less. Yeah, that's wild. So the, the video that you mentioned, you said it was a country musician who wanted yeah. to create that. So what's the story behind that? Who is the country musician? Is this video somewhere where people can watch it? Yeah. So her name is Tara Thompson. Um, and her song is called Sodder City. So her brother was in the military, but she got together with um, a songwriter and they happened to know um, Robbie Grayson, this publisher that I've been working with. And he was like, well, let me get you in touch with Boone Cutler, who's written all these books about Sodder City. And they kind of collaborated on this song. And then at the end, you know, they were like, uh, they're like, let's, let's do this and let's bring Sodder City veterans into the video. Uh, and basically the song is, you know, it's like, uh, I'm, I'm not going to Sodder City, but I would go for you. And, and it, you know, talks about how in, in the story of the song, she loses her brother and, and, you know, the government, it's like, oh, we got this folded flag, but like, you don't even know my brother's name. Yeah. Uh, so it's, uh, <clears throat> you know, it's, it's kind of cool to just to be like, oh, I was in a country music video. Um, but yeah, so that's the story. Of course, her brother is still in the army, I believe. Um, he was not killed in Sodder City, but that was kind of the, the motivation for her story. Okay. Can you find this video like on YouTube? Um, yeah, I believe if you just search, yeah, I think it's on YouTube. I think it's on, um, is it like Vivo or uh -huh. something? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So uh, YouTube is usually my go-to, but it's, it's out there for sure. Okay. Well, I'm going to have to check this out after uh, we finish up here. <laughs> All right. um, and then when your book is available, how can people go about finding it and purchasing it? Um, that is actually something I am not hundred percent sure on yet. I think it will eventually be on Amazon, um, and possibly through Barnes and Noble and stuff, but I'm not hundred percent sure on all of that or when. Okay. Well, keep us posted. And I am curious. So, you know, this act of keeping a journal while you were experiencing all of this to, um, being in published, you know, being published and proud to be, do you feel in any way that that's helped you now to tell your story in your, your upcoming book? Do you feel like that was a nice stepping stone or, you know, did that help get you to the point that you're at now? I would say yes. Um, the thought of trying to put together a whole book and I had no idea where to start. And I had looked years ago at like, Oh, how do I self publish? How do I do this? How do I get published? And I had no idea, but you know, going through proud to be and, and getting into those first six volumes, I'm like, well, okay, I'm putting stuff together here that I can eventually, you know, pull out and use later. Um, but it took the pressure off. I was able to write, you know, seven or 10 or 12 pages and tell a whole story and, and it felt good to be published. I was more interested in, in just getting my work out there for people to see than I was trying to win the contest or anything. Um, but I think that just like not having to worry about how to get a whole book put together and then like, what are the steps of publication? And, you know, how could I ever possibly write, you know, hundreds of pages? Um, I think that that made it a lot easier. And then when I finally sat down and realized that I had typed up most of my journals and I had, you know, 200 pages in Word documents. And I'm like, well, once I fill this in, I'm going to have plenty to put together a whole book. It's just a matter of where do I start it and how do I wrap it up? Um, you know, and I think writing, I know a lot of, a lot of the contributors for Proud to Be have talked about like writing can be therapeutic. Um, and I think for me, it has been, I, I always kind of felt like once I put it down on paper, like then it was on the paper. It wasn't on me anymore, um, which is not the case for for everything. But uh, but I do think that being able to write stuff and like put the story down on the paper and like share it with people that way. Um, I mean, I hope it promotes some understanding, but also it's a little bit like it takes it off your shoulders. Yeah, absolutely. I've definitely heard that from a lot of our contributors. So do you have any words of wisdom for um, 
say maybe a younger veteran who's wanting to write, what would be some of your, or maybe even an older veteran who never got into writing, but still has these stories in their head and they, they would like them out. Do you have any suggestions? I mean, I think I would say, write it down <laughs> you know, and, and share it with anybody who will look at it um, because their stories are important. You know, the history is important. Their experiences matter. Um, and I think it's all stuff that, that should be preserved and, and shared with other generations. Yeah, absolutely. I loved when you were um, talking about the Arlington Cemetery experience and that effect that the woman in blue had on you and that, you know, you needed to come home and you just knew you needed to write about it. But, you know, that's a really intimate piece and that you shared it with your wife, which I think can be really challenging for um, people who experience war to share those stories with civilians who might be a little disconnected um, from that experience. So, um, you know, I love that you then took that piece and you bravely shared it with the world. Um, so, yeah, I don't know how that moment felt to you <laughs> of sharing that with your wife and then it's, deciding I, I'm, like, okay, I'm going to submit this piece. I, I always want her to be impressed with stuff that I do and I'm always afraid she won't be <laughs> which is silly I mean gosh we've been married for I mean in another week it'll have been 21 years so Ooh, congrats thank you um yeah even writing this book I I got stuck on the last chapter and she was kind of pushing me and she's like you know when are you going to get this done you, you thought I'd be out by Christmas and I'm like I know I know <laughs> You know, and she's like, well, what are you waiting on? Are you, you know, and I'm like, look, I'm, I'm struggling to, to wrap this thing up. Like I have all the words that I want to say, but they are not in the right order. You know, and I'm like, I, I can't, I can't get it. And like, I just kind of walked away from it for a few months. And she was like, you've been wanting to write a book forever. And she's like, and now you're, you know, you're in your final pages and you're just going to walk away from it. <laughs> and, and I mean, she was pushing, you know, she was encouraging. Um, and I finally, one day I was like, you're right. I'm going to, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to, I'm going to knock this thing out. And I, I did. And then Robbie, that's been working with me to do editing and everything. And, you know, we were going back and forth in email and back and forth in email. And finally he was like, all right, proofread it again. And I'm like, I have read this thing so many times I'm, I'm over it. Um, you know, and my wife is actually better at proofreading for, you know, punctuation and spelling and stuff like that than I am. And it was the last round that I'm like, all right, I'm going to go through this one more time, but I need you to go through it too. And then I like sat waiting, like, oh my gosh. <laughs> um, but then really we ended up with about the same notes on stuff that needed to be changed. And, and it was just a couple of things at that point. So, um, she's been awesome and, you know, pushed me when I needed it and backed off when I didn't need it. And, <laughs> Um, but it's, it's nerve wracking to know, you know, all my, all my family and all my friends. And then the guys who are in these stories, they're all like, we want to read it, you know? And I'm like, I'm worried that they're going to be like, that's not what I remember. Or, you know, it, I, I'm just worried that people are going to be like, no, no, no. And not, you know, not because I'm like making up stories or anything, but just because I feel like we all have our own memories and it's been years mm -hmm. ago at this point. So I don't want people to question, you know, what I remember, or, you know, I, I don't know, I'm worried about how it will be received by, by the people who know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that's a fair, fair way to be even when I do these podcast episodes, like I want to make sure I'm writing questions or asking you questions that's helping you arrive at the story that you want to tell because I want to honor your stories. Um, and I feel like that's, or if I'm talking about my dad's like military experience as a Vietnam veteran, like I always want to be able to honor his version of the story, you know, cause I wasn't there. Um, but yeah, I think that's just true to any experience There's, with the woman in the blue, like, you know, after reading that piece, you really want to know, like what was going on when she was sitting there and what was going through her mind and what was that experience? And you know, even if you knew that, like how you would share, it would probably be different than what she was experiencing. So I feel like what you truly are wanting to do though, in the spirit of all of this is not only share that experience that you had, but to honor 
and make sure that your story involves the people that were around you and very much a part of that narrative. So I feel like you will do your best to, to honor that. <laughs> well, I, I remember the first time I saw my name in a book and I was like, wow, this is really cool. Um, you know, and then I think about my kids someday will read this. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think, you know, about the the guys I served with and their kids or their wives or their parents are going to read it, you know, or the guys who, uh, who we lost over there, like their family will, you know, they may or may not read it, but if they do, I want them to know that their loved one is, is remembered, you know, and that those stories are at least going to survive in, in pages after we're all gone. Um, like they'll still be here and their name will still be out, you know, for, yeah. for people to hear and, and read. Absolutely. And I feel like that really captures the reason why the Missouri Humanities has proud to be in partnership with Southeast Missouri State University is not only to help share veteran stories, but also really to provide these stories for um, family members, for children, wives, um, and anybody that's outside of that perimeter um, as younger generations are further removed away from war, hopefully people can pick up these stories and have a better understanding of our nation's wartime experience. Uh, both those downtime moments and those like movie scene uh, moments. So last question, uh, what do you hope others gain from reading your proud to be contributions and your upcoming book? And I guess two questions. Is there anything coming after that? Um, so what I, what I'm hoping to accomplish with, I mean, my proud to be submissions and my book, I've always, I mean, I've lost several guys to suicide from different units after I've come home. Um, sometimes years after we got home, you know, and, and I hope that when other veterans or, you know, military people read what I've written I hope that they can connect with those experiences and be like yeah I know exactly what he's talking about I felt that way I remember that or we did the same thing Um, so I hope that there's a a feeling of connection there and and shared experiences that they can kind of hang on to and not you know not feel alone and and isolated and then I hope that people who haven't been there and had those experiences will you know I hope that it kind of opens a lens and helps people see and, and understand some more of those experiences. Like, um, you know, just talking about what it's like to be at Arlington as a veteran versus as a tourist, you know, like, I hope that they're like, oh, okay. I never, never would have thought of that. Or, you know, being, being on the phone with your wife when there's a machine gun firing outside and you're like, I gotta go, you know, like just some of those situations, I hope they're like, wow, I never, never thought of that part. Cause it doesn't show it in the movies, you know? Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I hope that there's understanding and connection. Um, and then as far as what comes next, I really don't know. Um, I would love to start working on some other stuff. And um, my sort of philosophy of education is a little different from a traditional school mindset. So I would love to eventually put some of that down on some pages and, and maybe do something with that. And then, you know, for a long time, when I was working on this book, I was like, I am I feel like I have told all my stories. And then my wife, you know, she's like, you were in the army for 10 years and you did four deployments. That's ridiculous. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, and she was right. I sat down and started thinking, you know, just, just recently, I just started making like a bullet list about like different things that I haven't even touched on yet that I could possibly write about. And I'm like, well, maybe I'll, maybe I'll do another one or maybe I'll submit, you know, I was hoping to submit something to proud to be this year. And then I missed the deadline because I was working on this book and didn't, didn't get anything else done, but, uh, but I do, I want to keep writing. I haven't, haven't really, you know, I've been focused on this book and on work and my kids activities and everything. And I haven't sat down to really think about new stuff and other avenues lately. So hopefully next year. Yeah. Well, life is always happening and uh, we'll forgive you for not submitting since you are writing your own book, (laughs) but submissions will soon be open for, uh, gosh, we just closed submissions for proud to be 11. So it's kind of wild that we have this many volumes and people are still submitting and there's just so many stories. So hopefully we'll see you in PTB 12. (laughs) That'd be great. 
<laughs> and uh, keep me posted on when the book comes out. That's so exciting. Um, thank you for taking time to chat today. Uh, it's been a little while since we've seen one another. Um, <laughs> um, but thank you so much for sharing your stories and for being a part of Proud to Be. Yeah, thanks for having me. I, I love having an opportunity to to talk about writing and talk about veterans issues. And, and I'm just, I'm always happy to have a chance to do that. Awesome. If you would like to read Jared's PTB pieces, you can purchase Proud to Be Volumes 1 through 10 at mohumanities.org backslash veterans. This podcast is brought to you by Missouri Humanities. Please help us share these stories by sharing episodes with friends, family, and on your social media platforms. If you're listening on an app, don't forget to follow us and leave a review. I'm Lisa Carrico, and we hope you will tune in for future episodes of Proud to Be as we interview PTB contributors to discover the stories behind their PTB contributions.